You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Last Friday, just a few hours after President Trump spoke at Davos, I had the chance to visit with Catherine Kluver Ashbrook, who is the founding executive director of the Future of Diplomacy Project at the Harvard Kennedy School. Catherine, who formerly worked at CNN International for over a decade as an international journalist, notably specializing in EU politics, has a keen perspective on the upcoming elections in Italy, the rise of authoritarianism in Hungary and Poland, and other timely transatlantic issues. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me today. So, you know, this is a very interesting day to have this conversation because President Trump spoke this morning at Davos. What does Europe expect from President Trump at this point? Well, at this point, I think all, all bets are off. And in some respects, the gloves have come off because... You mentioned the president spoke this morning in Davos. Well, over the last few days, the European leaders have spoken and have gotten a similarly large stage, including Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, and the prime minister of Italy, Paolo Gentiloni. And all three of them said, said and implied that basically their confidence was in restoring the European project and restoring the strength of Europe economically and then also with respect to its own physical strength and its own ability to project power at the very least in its own neighborhood. Because I think um, what they have seen and read in between the president's lines and in some respects it might not necessarily help if a president says in this speech that Gary Cohn wrote for him that it's America first but America not alone or not America alone. They're beginning to lose faith in those pronouncements because those are generally followed up with tweets or other statements in entirely Within the, the next few hours. direction. Yeah, right. uh, and so in that sense, I think for Europe, it's been an oddly or perhaps schizophrenically good development because there is a renewed energy to resolve some of the biggest challenges within the European Union, including how you construct a defense component, how you reinvest in NATO, how you're able... So you're saying that they've made, in a sense, President Trump has compelled the leaders to become more introspective? Oh, yes. yes and have decided to reinvest in quintessential European strengths um, in as much as, as they still exist for a Europe that's been stricken by a series of crises over the past decade. But yes, it's a very clear reinvestment to put Europe's own house in order because I think there's an increasing fear that the United States cannot entirely be counted on. After Brexit, I think there was some concern that there might be other exits, French exits and so forth. What has been the true cost thus far for Brexit, for the UK, for the UK, and also for the Prime Minister. Yeah, I think it's been an incredibly humbling experience for Theresa May. I mean, this is not the outcome she wanted. If you'll recall, she campaigned very clearly on the Remain side and would have wanted this because I think, frankly, there are still people in the Conservative Party who, even without doing the math, could see that if you don't have an integrated services market and 80% of your economy is in services and is in services to the European Union, to cut yourself off at the canal is going to have deeply destructive effects on your own 
economy. And you're seeing, of course, that all the specialized financial services are looking for different homes, either in Frankfurt or in Ireland or in Paris. Um, and so you're already seeing this exodus that impacts the British economy and will continue to. And David Davis, the cabinet member who's in charge of really putting in line the Brexit plans, has recently admitted he's never fully done the calculations. But the Rand Corporation here in the United States has uh, and foresees that this is going to have an enormous impact, not just because the Brits will have to pay as the negotiations in Brussels in December showed, or the, the closing of chapter one, $54 billion in one huge check, if you will, to Brussels to cover pensions, to cover different components. When does that have the- to be paid? Well, they're going to try to pull that time frame out over into this transition period, which Theresa May thinks is going to be two years. Other experts, including the analysts at Rand who have done some more of this math, think that transition period would have to be something more like four years, where, you know, in that time where you would then think about what kind of a trade deal Britain could have. And frankly, it's parked itself somewhat in a corner. It's arguing in favor of the Brexiteers that Mrs. May has in the cabinet are arguing for for a trade deal that rivals what the European Union agreed with Canada. Well, that deal took seven years, and that deal doesn't include services. So how, in the political reality that we now inhabit, you're going to get to a deal that in any way benefits Great Britain? I just don't see the math working out. What are your thoughts about the evolution of populism? I was just reading a piece that Max Boot wrote Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, and he was saying that it's probably not really economic. It may be more nationalism, which is a sorry state of affairs if that's what it is. Well, I think it's a combination of, of a number of things. I do think that the existence of the European Union and the way that policymaking was often shoved off to Brussels, I mean, that figure where 80% of your legislation in any European country is made in Brussels and only 20% of it is made by national governments anymore, so you're just implementing what comes down from Brussels, is probably not entirely inaccurate. But if you're not explaining to people, if you're not bringing people along in your public policy decisions, if you're asking them to look away, as Angela Merkel did, for instance, in the Eurozone crisis to her own citizens, where she said, oh, no, no, we've got this. And the next thing you know that, you know, German taxpayers are essentially on the hook for Greece's transgressions, that's not a way to make responsible European public policy now. So I think in the European case in populism, there are a number of factors. Some of them are then easily blamable on this elite project. But others have to do with the fact that these are societies that are changing, and they're changing rapidly, and they're changing deeply. And they have a different ethos, despite the fact that you, in theory, have had the Schengen area that's been open, where Europeans should intermingle and move freely and study freely across the European Union. The fact of the matter is there's not sufficient European movement, actually, to entirely economically justify the existence of Schengen when it comes just to the movement of people. But who is moving? People of non-European descent, and they're often poorly integrated into communities. They're often put into the really siloized physical buildings, not allowed to work, not allowed to be brought into the labor market until their status is decided. 
So all these things, whether they're real threats and in certain places of Germany, for instance, where nationalism and populism is rife, where most of the voters for the alternative for Deutschland have their home, the fact of the matter is the fears, the general anxiety about people's lives, about their economic, mm-hmm. uh, their own economic future. Economic security. Yes, economic security becomes mixed in with the kind of fear-mongering press or the fear-mongering fake news. So even in areas where you barely have immigrants, but where you have a lot of economic blight, those things begin to compound upon one another. And where they don't feel they have access or any kind of release valve, that's when... And politicians take advantage of it. Exactly. But Emmanuel Macron has walked a very fine line. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's socially liberal, Mm -hmm. and yet, I think it was just last week, he gave an important speech in Calais saying, you know, we're going to have to put new restrictions on immigration. immigration." Well, I think it's interesting to ask that question right after the populist question, because you could think, or one could say, that Emmanuel Macron, in his own right, is a populist. But he did it in a very interesting fashion. The way that he built République en marche was to do exactly what nobody had done in decades, which is to go out to the country and ask people questions about who they were, what their economic situations were, what their biggest fears were, and what their hopes were. And that became... Somewhat un-French to do yeah, that. Yeah, very un-French. I mean, yeah. the French have, a, have an elite built, an elite geared system like no other within the European Union. Mm-hmm. And for him to disrupt that mechanism and go out and ask those kind of questions, I think, indicates that even that country is ready for change. But I mean, the truth is inevitable. In order to win back confidence of European voters and European citizens, again, you're going to have to guarantee their economic security and their physical security. And if you have porous borders on different sides of the union where the problems are not dealt with in sort of a long-term fashion, then this will continue. We have just a few more minutes, and I do want to ask you about the elections that are going to take place in Italy on March 4th. I cannot believe that Berlusconi is still in the picture. Mm -hmm. Well, some Italians can't either, frankly. (laughs) Italy will forever be a very unique case study within the European Union. Robert Putnam, my colleague at Harvard, wrote a very seminal book called Making Democracy Work, which was all about the two halves of Italy and the differences between the North and the South and how, truthfully, in becoming a founding member state of the European Union, that papered over some of the critical inequalities that exist between the North and the South. And now you're seeing this play out in a more sort of practical vehemence. The fact that Northern Italy is seemingly attracted to this idea of secession and in parts joining Austria. I mean, the fact that these sort of odd political movements are coming out of... uh, being discussed. Exactly. Are coming out of a founding European member state. The fact that the constitutional reforms, which Italy needed... So what's your guess about what may happen on March 4th? Well, Italy is very difficult to forecast. The good news for the people who are watching populism very closely is I think the five-star movement has lost its appeal and it's lost its functionality. It's lost it in cities and it's lost it on a greater national scale. I think people see how volatile the situation is in Italy. They know that they need this stability. I would like to see critical governance reforms reattempted. And so I, for one, am at least hoping that Gentiloni and his party and the sort of stability of the middle pulls it out again. And I think because people have become increasingly disillusioned with populist movements, there might be a chance. And be able to form some type of coalition. So last question. You just recently gave remarks here at the World Affairs Council. And I think you were somewhat pessimistic about Hungary and Poland, yes, this rise I in am. authoritarianism. I am. It's very worrisome. What's most worrisome for me is not only these developed 
developments, but the tactical way in which this is deployed. I said in my speech, not only are you know they sort of changing the composition of institutions that are designed to hold democratic leaders accountable, including the courts, that's in clear violation of European framework rules, but they're paying off their publics in a way with extended social transfer payments to try to hush them up. It's not working entirely, luckily. But in other regards, I worry because the European Union no longer has a set of instruments strong enough, I feel, to really slap these countries across the wrist. In 2001, it did. It sanctioned Austria when they had a far-right party join the government. But now they can no longer do that because if they bring, they just leveraged Article 7a against Poland and said you Mm -hmm. have X amount of time to clean up your judicial system and restore it back to that neutral body it once was. What's Poland's incentive? Because if the European Union tries to go any further, they'd have to put it to a vote in the council. And then I guarantee you, Viktor Orban's Hungary will vote right in line to let the polls continue what they're doing. So I think it's a very dangerous situation. It's very volatile. It's something that needs to be watched very closely. I think the commission particularly is very aware of this, and they're going to try to use the treaties as much as they can. But as I said in my speech, these kind of developments expose just how inadequate a lot of the governance mechanisms that the European Union has designed for itself and the fact that it never fully had the opportunity or the energy or the leadership to build that out fully brings us to this point where we don't have concrete answers of this great peace project to ensure that we have a coherence of strength of democracies across the European continent and it's very worrying. Well, it'll be very interesting to follow what happens in those two countries because there's so much economic manufacturing companies that American as well as European that are both in Poland and Hungary. I want to thank you so much for being with us this thank afternoon. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.